Welcome to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. We meet each Sunday online and in person at 1030 a.m. You can find the Bernie Church of Christ at number one Upper Balconies Road right next to Starbucks. With today's message, here's our youth and family minister, Jacob Dukes. When I was in high school, I had a group of friends that I'm, I'm still close with and still friends with, and we liked to explore. We liked to go outdoors, into the woods, all around town, and explore San Antonio, which is where I grew up. Now, those of you with property, especially here out in Bernie and the hill country and like that, are not going to like what I'm about to say, but we were not always respectful of those signs you see on many properties that say, no trespassing. (laughs) We were the type of kids that typically ignored those signs and took them more as a suggestion rather than a firm statement. We were not very respectful of no trespassing signs. We liked to roam the woods. We liked to hike across hills, um, visit abandoned warehouses, or even abandoned concrete plants. We went all over. We just liked to explore. And most of these places, I have to confess to you today, we were not allowed to be in and we're not supposed to be on that property. But that's, that's another side of the story for another time. But the reason I bring that up is because I, I pose this question to us. Why do we desire to keep people out? Like, what's the purpose behind those signs that say no trespassing or keep out? Like, why do we keep people out? Well, for starters, we don't want anybody causing damage to our property, right? We, we respect our land, we respect our homes, we respect the ways that God has blessed us, and we don't want other people causing unwanted damage to our possessions and our property. There's also liability concerns to consider. Um, there's some signs outside on our playground, even here at the church building, that even say, no trespassing, play at your own risk for visitors who come to our property and are maybe not necessarily invited from time to time because we have liability concerns. We're told by our insurance that we must put up those signs because if somebody gets hurt, then it would be our fault if we didn't have signs that say, play at your own risk, even though most people would consider that. So we protect our property because there's liability concerns there. What if somebody gets hurt or what if they hurt somebody else? We're concerned about that. And finally, the reason we have some of those no trespassing or keep out signs has to do with privacy. All of us want our own personal space to retreat to where no one can bother us unless we invite them in. Yet it seems to me that in the same way, in the same way that we've placed boundaries between our property and other people's property and placed those boundary lines and property lines between us, God has also placed a large boundary between us and him. And here's what I mean by that. In the book of Job, you have this beautiful narrative, this beautiful piece of poetry, this so vivid and imaginative when you consider all that Job goes through. The, most of the story is filled with dialogue rather than narrative. But you have a brief narrative at the beginning of this book where you learn about this man named Job. 
Job is a righteous man. He fears God. He respects God. He continually offers up sacrifices to God and never claims he is a Jew. But if he is, he is most certainly the ideal Jewish man in their society. He's a pinnacle figure in their community, helping people who feel left out, helping people who feel like they've been taken advantage of, helping people in every way possible in his society. Job is a leader. And he's the leader that everyone looks to, this righteous and holy man. Then you move in the narrative towards this heavenly meeting. There's this weird heavenly meeting that goes on where God calls all of the angels to gather together and speak and have kind of a little powwow session to go on. And in the midst of that powwow, Satan shows up and is on the scene. And God does a weird thing here. This may be its own sermon in and of itself, where God offers up Job's own reputation against Satan's claims. God offers up Job's name and says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says to God, the only reason that Job follows you is because you've blessed him with a great family, you've blessed him with wealth, and you've blessed him with leadership. All these things that humans desire you have blessed him with that, and that is the only reason he worships you. So God accepts that challenge and says to Satan, well, go ahead, take these things away from him, and let's see how he responds. So Job loses his wealth, his family. Job loses everything that he has worked his entire life for. But yet, Job doesn't sin by blaming God. Job doesn't really blame anybody, even though in this story, God seems to be at fault. Then later on, you have this heavenly meeting, part two. You have part two of this heavenly meeting goes on where God once again calls all the angels together. It sort of seems like a staff meeting in some instances. Um, but for some reason, God calls all of the angels together, brings them amongst each other. Satan shows up. God says one more time, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan puts God to the ultimate challenge here and says, well, the only reason he didn't turn from you that first time is because you just took away all this stuff from him. You did not threaten his life. If you threaten a man's life, then surely he will turn against you, God. So once again, God accepts that challenge from Satan and says to Satan, you may harm Job with one stipulation. You may not take his life. So as a result, Job is then covered in these painful sores and even take, it says that he takes a, a piece of, of, of a, a clay pot and starts scraping his sores because he's in such deep pain and that's the only way he can find relief. Job's wife eventually loses faith in God and then loses faith in Job himself and says, Job, you are nuts for still following after this God who is certainly causing you pain. But Job seems to remain faithful, at least for a time. Job's then comforted and confronted by three friends of his. These three friends approach Job and sit with him for seven days and seven nights, not saying a word, simply listening or sitting in silence with him to provide him deep comfort. 
But then eventually, one of the friends opens their mouth, and you have this back-and-forth exchange, these three different cycles where one of Job's friends will say, I believe that this is why your situation has come about this way. And then Job will respond that certainly you are not right. Then you go through this cycle, friend to friend to friend. Job responds, friend, friend responds. This back-and-forth exchange over why these things have happened to Job. But through all of that dialogue, you you start to see the foundational understanding of God in ancient Israelite culture through the words of these three friends. And it's simply put this way, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, Job, if bad things are happening to you, you must have done something bad. And certainly, if you were truly good, None of these bad things would be happening to you. That is their foundational understanding of how God rules and reigns and governs the world. Now, eventually, in the midst of this back-and-forth argument between Job and his closest friends, we start to see him lose hope and faith in God. And it's no more abundantly clear than in the words of Job chapter 13. Job 13, verses 20 through 28, reads this way. Job says this, Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me reap the sins of my youth. You fasten my, sheet, my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my past by putting marks on the soles of my feet. And he says this, So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moss. And then finally, in Job's closing remarks, he lays out some very heavy accusations against God. In Job chapter 30, verses 20 through 23, you see these accusations that Job lays upon God when he says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer me. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know, says Job, that you, God, will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Job's depression and despair that he finds himself deeply entrenched in leaves him longing for death. Time and time again, Job says, that death would be much sweeter than living any life moving forward, claiming that death is sweeter than even life itself. Job feels abandoned by God, but to be honest, he's not the only one in human history that echoes this message. From Psalm 44, verses 9 through 12, but now you, meaning God, have rejected us. God, you have rejected us and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. 
and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You are listening to the radio ministry of the Burning Church of Christ. To learn more about us, please visit our website, burningchurchofchrist.org, or follow us on Facebook. Now, with the rest of today's message, here's Youth and Family Minister Jacob Dukes. Now, when you consider these words from Job from Psalm 44, you might ask yourself, for what reason do they lay these accusations upon God? That he ignores his people, that he leaves them amidst the enemy to be attacked and to be destroyed, that he cares not for his people, that he could honestly not even care less about them. For what reason do Job and the psalmist here accuse God for striking them with terrible tragedies? Well, the reason that they state, both Job and the psalmist, is neglect. They accuse God of neglecting his people, ignoring them and leaving them to fend for themselves. Psalm 44, it reads this way, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression, claiming that God has fallen asleep and is ignoring his people and has left them all alone? And if that's not abundantly clear through the words of the psalmist there, then they can certainly get across here through Job's, from Job chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. But this is what you concealed in your heart, talking about God. And I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Job accuses God of being this mean little kid sitting on the sidewalk, magnifying glass in hand, waiting for an ant to walk by so he can shine the sun on them and burn them. Job accuses God of sitting back and waiting for his children upon earth to sin just so he can punish them and enact bad things on bad people. Now, our consistent frustration here that God is so far out of our reach, that God has placed this boundary between us and him, and it seems as if we cannot relate to him or that he cannot relate to us, it results in these accusations of neglect on God's part. And when we consider our own feelings and experiences, these accusations seem valid and somewhat reasonable. But that was never where the people stopped. That was never enough for countless Jews and Christians alike to desert God and refuse to worship Him, even when they desired to do otherwise. In my life, I have felt the presence of that 
boundary, that barrier between us and God, where it feels as if God is not able to be reached, where he's just outside of our grasp. The realization of this boundary can lead us to be apathetic to God, to not care about our relationship with him, and to not even pursue it. Because if I cannot reach up to the heavens and feel God's presence and have him abundantly clear acting in my life, if that's just out of my grasp, why would I even extend my hand? I return to those words from uh, our scripture reading this morning that Daniel read for us from Job chapter 9 where it says, if only there was someone to mediate between us. If God is so far away and we feel that we cannot relate to him and he cannot relate to us because of this distance between us, this boundary that we are not allowed and not able to cross, then we're in need of a mediator. If this conflict cannot be resolved, we are in need of a mediator. And I think throughout the history in what you see within the, whole, the Old Testament, consistently there's these mediators that are brought about. Abraham receives a promise from God, but is not able to deliver on it himself. Moses is actually the one who's welcomed into the presence of God and gets the closest of any human to see the face of God, but later is banished from it as a result of his sins. David himself is declared this great king over Israel and is known as one of the greatest kings of all and given great power and authority to serve God's people, but later his heart and his ego are humbled as a result of his many and great sins. Now, despite the great lives and models of leadership that we find in so many of these biblical characters, there's really only one true mediator between us and God, Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are only outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ then is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So now that our relationship with God has been corrected through the mediator, the true mediator in Christ, how then do we seek to break this barrier, to break down this boundary that is seemingly still there between us and God? If even still to this day, we feel as if he's just out of our reach, how do we seek to break that boundary and experience the presence of God within us today? 
Well, I firmly believe that the way we break that boundary is through consistent worship, the one true king. And then this summer, we were gifted with a great opportunity with three trips for our youth group, the first of which was a trip to Encounter at Lubbock Christian University. Um, At each of these events, our students were able to worship God in many great and mighty ways, and you'll see some pictures of those upon the screen here as well. At Encounter, each night we experience impactful and embracing worship where students were literally, quite literally, jumping up and down in praise and worship to God, singing at the top of their lungs, worshiping with their entire body and soul. And then later in the summer, we took a trip to Galveston for our Galveston mission trip where students were able to experience different cultures and communities, as you'll see here. Students experienced different cultures and communities and talked to residents from the North Broadway neighborhood, seeking ways to serve God amidst this impoverished and crime-ridden neighborhood. Um, And as well at night, we broke down our day, talked about what we experienced. And oh, if you could just hear these students' voices singing at each devotional, praising God, for the opportunity that he bestowed upon them. And finally, just this past week, many of us took a trip, 16 of us took a trip to Sunshine Christian Youth Camp at Camp Bandina, a place that is held very special within the hearts of many within this church. And there are great opportunities that we had this past week. Yes, uh, to listen to the voice of God and to praise him all the more. Students participated in singing classes, had worship every night, and the most beautiful moment of them all was held in a gazebo every night where all of our senior campers, ninth grade through graduates, gathered together to sing songs of praise and sung in such great, beautiful, and majestic harmonies that you could never imagine. One of our adult volunteers this summer said it best, and I can't quote her verbatim, so I'm I'm not going to say whose quote this is, but one of our adult volunteers said it best that if all adults, especially the ones here this morning, came with us, the youth group, on one of these youth ministry trips and saw how our students worship and serve and seek our God, then any negative reviews or any complaints against our students, anything bad that we have to say about the next generation would all dissipate. Anything that we have against students, kids, young adults, or any generation other than our own, any negative and vile thing that we might think of would all be made false because of the way you see these students sing and worship and seek God. If you were able to see how these students love to worship and serve their God and love to sing His praises, you would have such a great hope and joy in the future of the church and know that it's certainly in great hands. So if this is possible for our students, if it's possible for our students to go and gather together and worship God and actually truly experience His presence and experience His love through song and through togetherness, if it's possible for our students, then it's possible for us as well this morning. 
Now during this next song, let's join one another then in true, authentic worship, lifting our voices high, breaking that boundary that we feel between us and God, between God and our land. Thank you for listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. You can hear the Bernie Church of Christ right here on Bernie Radio each Sunday at 11 a.m. or for worship online or in person each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To learn more about the Bernie Church of Christ, visit our website, berniechurchofchrist.org, or call us at 830-249-2685. Again, that's 830-249-2685. Thank you once again for listening to the Burning Church of Christ, and I hope you have a blessed day.